we'll start um, again once again. So um, the Council of Europe and the European Union are two separate organizations. Council of Europe is located primarily in Strasbourg. Count the European Union, the big, more famous organization because it's, it involves with the economy, is based in three different. Are you in classroom support first? Classroom support or uh, what was this? Just ask for classroom support. Classroom. Hello. Uh, the European Union okay. is located in three cities: sure. Strasbourg, Brussels, and the Luxembourg. The capital has the Court of Justice of the European Union. Uh, and what we're trying to do here is. Uh, familiarize yourself with the organization so when we talk about the negotiation processes we'll have a, a sense of where uh, this institution has come and where it's headed. Essentially this organization is considered the most successful organization to stop war in world history. For 60 years there's been no war in Europe, for 70 years there's been no war in Europe after three devastating wars between France and Germany. Yet, at the same time, people say the European Union is no longer relevant because it I failed to pass a constitutional uh, plebiscite or ratification process in the middle of the last decade. They tried to say, instead of having six treaties, each one referring to another treaty, which refers to another treaty, thank you very, very much, which refers to another treaty, um, they tried to have a constitution about five or six years ago, and at least two countries f voted it down, France and the Netherlands. So they did have another follow-up treaty called the, uh, uh, um, see, Copenhagen, it's uh, Lisbon Treaty. Lisbon Treaty of December 2009 took effect and added on to the six previous treaties that date back to the Treaty of Rome that founded the European Union in 1959. So it's very hard to, look at these various treaties and understand what the Constitution is. It's not a country, it's a confederation. The United States Constitution, you can say Article One, that's the legislature. Article Two, that's the presidency. Article Three, that's the judiciary. Um, we know that there are checks and balances and shared powers, so we know we don't have pure separation of powers in the American constitutional model, but at least we have one document. And of course, it's had amendments, and so you find rights in Article One, Section 9, you find rights in the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. You find rights in the 14th Amendment. You find rights right up to the present day dealing with non-discrimination on voting on the basis of sex or age, for example. But it's still at least one document, right? European Union is this colossal organization. It has negotiations inside the European Union between those four main branches that I talked about the last time. And then it has negotiations with other entities out in the world. So to understand how this organization operates uh, and to understand how world politics operates, including international organizations, we need to know what are the formal processes and what are the informal processes that make an organization click, right? You know, we have the U.S. Constitution and we have our understanding of the U.S. Constitution, which goes a lot further to explaining to us how it really works, right? We know Formally, the president is the chief executive, right? But we have popular presidents who are very power, powerful, and we have unpopular presidents who have a far less power. So informally, the powers of the president don't necessarily translate into how powerful a given president is, right? So in international organizations, we can think of formal powers and informal powers. Uh, the formal powers are those designated in these various treaties. So the main branches, again, don't see a magic marker here. Does anyone have one I can write on the board with? Anyway, I will. hopefully this thing will work and I'll show you pictures of these organizations uh, in due course. But those, those main branches, just to review from several weeks ago, uh, that don't correspond neatly to executive, legislative, and judicial, except for the court. So we'll start with the court. The court of the European Union, anyone remember what it's called? The Parliament? No, the court. The Court of Justice of the European Union, okay? And that's located in Luxembourg, a tiny country south of Belgium, which is south of the Netherlands, on the eastern side of the Netherlands. Hi, I'm trying to get this hard drive to be read. It has a password and it won't let me on. 
not sure if this is going to So the Court of Justice is the supreme law of all the countries in the European Union on those issues of law that the European Union has authority, such as the common agricultural policy. Again, those are the subsidies paid to farmers, big, big part of the budget, just like it's a big, big part of our budget. As big as our national defense and so forth. And the other is the regime for free trade, uh, which gets rid of tariff duties and quotas so that if you're a worker in Romania, you can work in Portugal or England. And you have freedom of movement, freedom of capital, free trade designed to promote smart. Where is the name of that hard drive? Okay. Um, the Quasi-legislator is called the, the European Parliament. The European Parliament is located in Strasbourg, uh, that city in Alsace, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, a city you can do a semester abroad in the political sciences European Union program, which if any of you are interested is fantastic. Uh, you live in a castle, um, and you can either bike or take the bus 10 minutes to class with 40,000 other students. You can take classes in English or French. Uh, Germany is right across the Rhine River. Don't make a call. I don't want to interrupt you. That's okay. That's okay. Thanks. Um, and that parliament there has those legislators elected directly in European Parliament elections every three or so years. But it's not. It is not the only legislative body in the European Union. Um, and you, who can recall that distinction I made in class a few weeks ago between supranational? And intergovernmental. Can anyone tell me what that is? Yeah. Supranational or uh, intergovernmental, or I guess the in, in between the governments or uh, between the intergovernmental sounds like among governments. That's yeah. true. But what is the distinction? Do you remember? Oh, um, you mean like what? Like General Assembly and Security Council. That was the analogy I made to the United Nations. You, you recall the lecture, but can you remember <coughs> the distinction between? Intergovernmental and supranational, yeah? Supranational national would be a separate organization that doesn't answer to any specific sovereign government. Correct. And intra... Inter. Inter... Intergovernmental. Intergovernmental. Intergovernmental would be like an organization of Germany and England and France all coming together right. as kind of a council. So um, the... Security Council and the General Assembly of the UN is intergovernmental. The Organization of American States is intergovernmental because each country is represented and, and the leaders there act as representatives of their government. A supranational organization is one that represents the UN or the European Union. So the Secretariat of the European Union is called the Commission. Does that sound familiar from a previous class? The European Commission is got thousands of employees. They, they write the first draft of all regulations and they administer programs like the Common Agricultural Policy or the Free Trade Regime. And that's supranational because the civil service of the European Union administers it's supposed to look at the interests of Europe or the European Union at large. Everyone got that? The um, European Court of Justice, the Court of Justice of the European Union is also supranational. Why is that? It's independent and the judges are appointed by members but they don't represent the country. They serve in a personal capacity using their individual expertise as judges to make decisions as they see the, sh the cases coming before them. What is, can anyone remember what is the one part of the European Union that is int uh, intergovernmental? It's the most powerful part but it's only one out of four is intergovernmental. No. European Parliament members are elected to serve in their individual capacity to represent their views. It might, that's more of a hybrid. It's got some elements of both. Anyone remember? That's the UN again. Okay, that, this is the European Council. So the heads of state and the foreign ministers are the representatives and they're there to represent their country. Furthermore, that particular body which has the a power to approve or not approve all treaties, membership of the organization, and other strategic policies has a decision rule of consensus. What does that mean, consensus? Common agreement. Common agreement. Technically, it means one vote <coughs> will veto 
the whole thing. You need unanimity in effect. Consensus, though, tends to suggest that the dissenters can get the, may moderate their views in return for concessions. So they threaten to veto because one vote stops it from being approved. But they say, look, this is what it'll take to win my vote. Right now, there are 27 member states of the European Union. Only one is playing the role of the veto player. That is Czech, Czech Republic. Its president, Václav Klaus, really doesn't like the idea of Europe. But the Czech voters don't really like the idea of Europe for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. Prague is a developed city, highly integrated now into the European and world economy. Um, but it's playing the role of the spoiler. Yeah. Does that go back to their whole problem with well, Czech Slovakia had the velvet divorce, where Czech and Slovakia, Czech Republic and Slovakia divorced, but without any violence. It was just a vote of the two component provincial legislators. Yugoslavia fell apart militarily in the early 1990s. Uh, you I thought you were asking, does the fact that Czechoslovakia d was partitioned into the Czech Republic and Slovakia around 1993, was that have something to do with it? It's possible. But he's a particular individual. The former president is the famous play playwright Václav Havel, same first name. Um, and in any event, uh, that's this particular character and his politics. And he has this uh, tremendous power. The uh, situation with this is I have to log in with the administrator, username and password, and I'm assuming this is something you're going to bring in often? No, or just, just, today? just today. Okay, then I'll get you in today, and then that'll be it. But Perfect. If you brought it again, we have to okay. do this every time. Okay, so, thank you. Um, so uh, that's the European Union. Uh, okay, just to repeat, who can tell me the four parts of the European Union? The three supranational and the one Intergovernmental, I just told it to you. The European Council, the Parliament. And what is that? Is that? Uh, the European Council is a representative from all of the countries. Right, but is it intergovernmental or supranational? Oh, it's intergovernmental. intergovernmental. And what are the other three? The, um, the Court of Justice. Of the European Union. The European Union, which is supranational. Supranational, Sup not super. Supernatural. Supra means above. <laughs> super means strong, like Superman. Yeah. Or super duper. European Parliament, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union, and the European Commission. The Commission is basically the executive branch. Okay. Now, if you go to Strasbourg for the study abroad program, and I hope one or two of you will be able to do that someday. If you can take a semester off, you can get your full five courses, full credit, in a foreign country. They have scholarships to help pay for pay the way, but you're going to probably have to pay for part of it. Um, in any event, the other organization that we're studying is the Council of Europe. Council of Europe is 10 years older. European Union is much more famous, much more well-known in the United States because that's where the money is. But the European Council, Council of Europe, which is different from the European Council of the European Union, so that's really confusing. But you're going to see these organizations if I get this hard drive. OK, here's the situation. Uh, has all its institutions located in Strasbourg. What you have to do is right click. Okay. And click explore. Okay. Should be able to get to that. Thank you. So it's all up? Uh-huh. You have to hit explore. If you just double click it, it will And where, where are my files? That's not it? No. That's not it. Maybe it's this. No, it, th these are these are just the how-to, but not not the actual files. Not sure what we're gonna do. If you exit out, I've already logged in as administrator. Okay. And it's still when I double click on it, it says a problem. It's, it's encountered a problem, and it won't let me on there. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really know what else I can do. If when I click, that's what's happening, and that's after I've logged in as administrator. So I figured maybe we try to get in a different way, exploring, but that's not your stuff, is it? No, that's that's the user manual stuff, but that's not the actual files. What you right I tried that. It doesn't work either. Well, we'll have to do this another day. I'm sorry about the photographs, but... Could you bring it on flash drive, maybe? 
And I've yeah. already spoken with my manager and gotten everything I can from him. So well, it's so not working. Right so now. okay. Thanks right. for trying. Sorry about okay. That. Careful okay. you. Um, yeah, I can bring them on a flash drive. That will work automatically. Um, I guess I could also post them on our ULEARN, right? All right. In any event, uh, the Council of Europe is the organization that's also in Strasbourg dedicated to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And when I, maybe a week from today, I'll show you the photographs that I had hoped to show off this much larger hard drive. Yeah. Um, you said there was formal powers and powers. Yeah. I haven't done that yet. I, right now I'm going through the formal powers of all these organizations, and, we'll, and, and I'm glad you're paying attention as far as that goes. Uh, formal powers. So formally, within the European Union, the Council is the most powerful, representing the states. It decides the big treaties, who gets to be a member, and so forth. Uh, the Commission is the executive branch that executes the programs and administers them. The Court of Justice is legally adjudicates. It's a more hierarchical answer to disputes among member states uh, and gives a court ruling. And its decisions are binding on the parties and binding on, on the European Union member states. Council of Europe doesn't focus on, on the economy in so much. It focuses on human rights. Now take the European Parliament. The Parliament of the Council of Europe is called the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, PACE, P-A-C-E, which I would write on the board, but you could write that down, P-A-C-E, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. The, unlike the legislators in the European Union, these legislatures are national legislators, like US Congress people, who are elected to the national legislature, and then they are indirectly elected to represent their country in the Parliamentary Assembly because of their expertise on human rights, democracy, the rule of law, and other Council of Europe mem uh, ideas. So their role is to pass resolutions that are not binding in the same way that the European Parliament's laws are binding, but then to lobby in their national legislatures to implement the resolutions that come out of the uh, PACE and to monitor compliance with the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights, also located in Strasbourg, which uh, adjudicates disputes over human rights violations by member states of the Council of Europe. Uh, it was a lot to swallow in one bite. Let me, let me just say again, they both have parliaments, right? The Parliament of the European Union is one of two legislative bodies that must approve all laws for laws to become laws. They have two legislatures in effect, the European Council, that intergovernmental organization I mentioned, and the European Parliament with direct elections. European Council, the heads of state are the members there, right? The um, Parliamentary Assembly passes resolutions, but they're not binding laws. But their members are all legislators in their home countries, and they're supposed to try to get the home countries to implement the resolutions of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe on human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. Yeah. Okay, so there are 47 out of 48 European countries are members of the Council of Europe. It includes all of Eurasia, Russia, um, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, all of those former Soviet, a lot of those Soviet uh, republics. Uh, the European Union has 27, so 20 less countries. I'm going to try and see what we can come up here and show you <coughs> pictures of these on the internet. But essentially, one organization, the older one, the Council of Europe, with much less power, includes every country in Europe except Belarus, sometimes known as White Russia. Their country is a dictator. You have to be a democracy. You have to abolish capital punishment. You have to uh, ratify the European Convention of Human Rights to be in the Council of Europe.
So if we go to the official website of the European Union, we're talking about the powerful economic organization. If we go to the Council of Europe, we're talking about the much weaker but still very crucial institution that strikes down laws as in member states for violating uh, principles of human rights embodied in the European Convention of Human Rights. So here's the European Union, um, basic information. Yeah, this is too slow. Oh, I know, here we go. this work? I can't get it. If you go to Google, you can just click images and all the images will pop up of it. All right. I, this is supposedly... So here's three key players. I mentioned the four. I guess that's in the next one. Let's see if this thing is going to open quickly. All right, well, okay, so here we have the European Parliament. European uh, Parliament is located in Strasbourg, where the Council of Europe is also located. I don't know which one of these things I'm supposed to click on. How do I make it more presentable? Where's that? Or up at the top where it says slideshow, up on the title bar, home insert design. Can you come up and do it because I can't follow you? Click <laughs> No? Top See where it says home? Like if you go over, 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 there's another view. There's only one slide in it. See, there's this, um, See this right here? Let me click that. Oh, alright, thank you. Alright, so we don't have here the Court of Justice of the European Union, but we have the Parliament, which is located in Strasbourg. I don't know if there's another. That's all there is. Okay. The Council of Ministers, otherwise known as the European Council, is the heads of state representing the countries. That's intergovernmental. This is the current president, is Herman van Rompuy. He could be German with that kind of name. It could be Belgian, I'm not sure. Uh, and the European Commission is the, the largest organization in employees and budget. They administer the European Union budget. The president, Jose Manuel Barroso, uh, is a very famous figure in Europe. Um, so, how are EU laws made? As I mentioned, since the Lisbon Treaty came into being, you have, uh, the f we're going over the formal powers. We'll go to the informal powers and networks and informal networks, how non-state actors and NGOs lobby all these people to give it meaning. But um, in this diagram, now I go down here, where? This one? The one on the right. The right. Okay, so first, a lot of people talk about a bill or legislation that they'd like. Then they go to the European Commission. This is totally different from the American process. This is the big secretariat. Uh, and the commission will take all this input and draft a, a first draft of a law. Then both the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers decide jointly both voting on whether they approve of this law or not, uh, then that law is implemented primarily in the member states because the European Union is not a government that operates in each country. Each country formulates the law in their own legal and political systems using European Union standards and requirements. Uh, and then both the Commission and the Court of Justice, the Commission through its regulations and monitoring, and the Court of Justice 
uh, if their cases in litigation will put that law into, into action and, and accept it or reject it. So are they the council of ministers? Is that what we're calling the European Council? Yeah, as I said, it has it's referred a couple of different ways. They call it council of ministers because although the president or prime minister might show up once a year, typically it's the foreign minister or the finance minister, depending on whether it's a foreign policy issue or an economic issue comes forward. Um, council ministers is the most powerful. It's the voice of the member states. It's intergovernmental. It's located in Brussels. And if this thing was going to come up, show you this next slide. Trying to find those, there it is. Okay, so there's one minister from each EU country. The president rotates every six months. So Václav Klaus is no longer the president, so he's not as powerful as he was, when, but he still has the right to vote down anything he doesn't like. It does decide the EU laws and budget together with the parliament. That's a change. Before the parliament basically ratified what the council did, now they have kind of equal powers since the Lisbon Treaty of December uh, 2009. It manages the common foreign and security policy that the European Union has developed. It now has its own European Union diplomats and foreign service. So in addition to possibly a career in diplomacy in your country, you could have a career in diplomacy in the European Union if you lived in Europe. Um, now one of the changes before, every, every country had one vote. So powerful Germany would be as powerful as a small country. Now we have votes distributed according to size. And that may not be as good as. Uh, I don't see those. Can you make that out? Anyway, Germany, France, Italy, and the UK all have 29 votes out of 345. So together they have almost a third of the votes, those four powerful countries. Even though Germany is the most populous, uh, they don't have more votes than those other countries. Spain and Poland have 27. Romania, which is almost is the second largest in Eastern Europe after Poland, is 14. Netherlands, 13, and so forth with Malta with just three votes Cyprus, which is slightly larger, um, having four votes along with Estonia, Luxembourg, and Slovenia. So you can see voting is weighted. That uh, to get a majority, it's qualified majority. So you need more than just 50% plus one. So it's not quite consensus like it used to be with veto power, uh, on, although on major votes they still might have that. But 255 out of 345, which is more than two-thirds, if I'm not mistaken, in order to get a, a law approved. Uh, beginning in 2014, 55% of the member states uh, with 65% of the population. I don't know what that's referring to here exactly. But. Something to pass, that's what it has to be in 2014. That's the new oh, that's going to be the standard, so 55% instead of 66%. So I guess when they first get started, they're going to go a little bit more slowly. Then they'll get to 55%. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't figure that, but thank you. Now, some summits at the European Council are the main time when I guess the heads of state show up. Now, where's that three-button thing? It's down there. It's there now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's right, it's right by 100%. Yeah, right beside the 100%. Here? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So here you see um, all the heads of state, mostly men, a couple of women. Um, Gordon Brown is there in the middle. He's no longer the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, England, and, and so forth. Uh, the summits are held at least four times a year. They set the overall guidelines for U.S. policies. <coughs> and again, the current president is Herman Van Rompuy, which means they set the agenda 
for the discussions of these main European Council issues. Now, something that's new under the Lisbon Treaty is to have a separate person who's the high representative for foreign affairs and security in order to try to get much more authority for the European Union as an independent actor of NATO. NATO includes the United States and, and Canada. The, when NATO was formed as a military organization, the saying went, um, we want to keep the United States in, the Soviets out, and the Germans down, meaning keeping Germany from starting another war. Uh, and in the crisis in Yugoslavia and also in Kosovo, they didn't have a unified policy. So essentially, the United States and NATO made all the decisions on foreign policy because Europe was always divided on how to respond to the crisis in Yugoslavia and so forth. So now they have this woman from the United Kingdom, Catherine Ashton, who now uh, not only chairs the Foreign Affairs Council meetings, but is also a vice president of the European Commission managing common foreign and security policy. And she's also head of their foreign service, which they call the External Action Service, which has both a political dimension as well as a foreign aid dimension. So the European Union gives a lot of foreign aid as the European Union, in addition to what member states the European Union might choose to give, such as the action, large presence of Poland and Belarus next door, where they're trying to promote democracy, or the United Kingdom and its former colonies, or France and its former colonies and so forth. So this is a new innovation, and we'll see whether Europe can begin to have an independent foreign policy. Now, the organization you hear the most about in Europe is called the European Commission. Review time. Is that intergovernmental <coughs> or supranational? Supranational. supranational, that's right. And it is located in Brussels. And Twenty-seven countries, so there are twenty-seven independent members, one from each country. Before they were called commissioners, the commission, you know, has legislative power because it proposes all new legislation. Remember that diagram? First, it goes to the commission, and then it's suggested to the parliament and to the council. Formally, yes. Informally, no. Formally, these are, we're going over formal powers. Informally. NGOs can suggest legislation to the parliament, and they probably would also take the suggestion. Um, guardian of the treaties refers to the fact that it monitors compliance with all the European Union treaties, including the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which is a, a charter of human rights for the European Union that also came into effect with the Lisbon Treaty in December 2009. And the Commission actually represents the European Union internationally, not, not the European Council. So that uh, Ms. Ashton, who is the high representative for the common security and foreign policy of the European Union, represents the 27 member states who are part of the European Union at the United Nations in treaty negotiations with other bodies. For example, the European Union is a um, formal observer of the Council of Europe. So is the United States. In theory, to be a, a, a formal observer, you also have to follow the rules of that organization as well. And now the Court of Justice, which used to be called the European Court of Justice, and now has changed its name to the Court of Justice of the European Union. Not sure what that implies, but. Um, like a lot of these courts, it's one judge per country. So there are 47 judges appointed to the Council of Europe's court, which is the European Court of Human Rights, because there are 47 member states. The Court of Justice of the EU has 27 member states. Therefore, they have 27 judges. But they're representing themselves in their personal capacity. They're not representing their country. Therefore, it's a supranational. And it rules on how to interpret European Union law and ensures that European Union countries apply European Union laws in the same way in one country to the next. So that even though it's implemented by different types of legal systems, such as common law in the United Kingdom or civil law in most of the other countries, because Napoleon exported civil law when he conquered all of Europe early in the 19th century. So that's the Court of Justice.
like all big organizations that give out a lot of money, you got to make sure there's no corruption or misuse of funds. We have the General Accountability Office, which is an arm of the United States Congress. Uh, the European Union has its Court of Auditors, which is designed to make sure there's no fraud or corruption or waste or abuse in the use of these funds. A little slow coming up, here we go. Again, 27 members because of the 27 member states. Uh, checks that EU funds are used properly and can audit any person or organization that deals with EU funds. So if you're in a country and you got an EU grant to spend money fixing up agriculture in that country and you're a minister and you steal half the money, they can audit you. Uh, and then they can at least find you guilty and presumably you'll be prosecuted and put in prison. Uh, for embezzlement or what have you. For those countries that are in the Eurozone, like Greece, Spain, and Portugal, as well as the big powerful countries, they have a common currency called the Euro that was established on the basis of the Maastricht Treaty. This news that you heard in the past year about countries like Greece that lied on their books uh, and spent more money than they taxed, and, and then there was a run on the Euro in the country because they didn't trust that the money was not going to be backed up. Uh, the European Central Bank uh, manages the monetary policy uh, on lending euros to banks who in turn lend money in the form of euros to borrowers that creates money in the, in the economies of these countries. You can't create too much money too fast or you'll get inflation. If you don't create enough money fast enough, you may have a recession. And monetary policy, like fiscal policy, are the two main policies that exist to try to get the economy moving when, the, when it's very well slowed down, like it's been slowed down in our country. Interestingly enough, the United Kingdom, which is not in the Eurozone, that is England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, is doing the opposite economic policy of the United States right now. We, are pump priming our economy. We haven't done huge amounts of expenditure in the last year, but in the first year of Obama, we spent a fortune on the theory that when you have under capacity and you need to get the economy moving, you pump prime the economy and pay back the debt later. And the idea is if you don't do that, and you're still not going to, the economy's still not going to recover because the government still is not going to get enough money in taxes and it's still going to have to borrow money. So this is Keynesianism. Great Britain now, under a conservative government, is taking the opposite approach, saying we don't want to get in debt. Therefore, we're not going to borrow money in the future now and pay back in the future in order to get the economy moving. We're cutting back everything to cut down our debt. So we have a veritable <coughs> experiment going on. The British way, which is the anti-Keynesian way, which says the way to get the economy moving is the way Her Herbert Hoover tried at the beginning of the Great Depression and failed. And the United States approach, which is the way Roosevelt did, which was to spend a lot more money than we take in taxes on the, on the idea that you get the economy moving, and if the economy does start to take off, then you'll, it was a, a, a worthy risk because the increased tax revenues will more than pay off the debt you borrow in the short run. And also, it's a humanitarian move. People out of work are much more likely to get jobs if you are borrowing money to spend more than you take in, in taxes. Obviously, you don't want to do that forever. You'd be broke forever if you borrow too much money. But in dire circumstances, it's considered to be the only way. And the debate in the United States has been whether to continue or not. In Britain, with the election of the new conservative government a year ago, they have decided we're not doing any more of that. We got too much debt already. The central bank of the euro, uh, and the reason the UK can do this is because they, can't, they don't have to obey orders of the central bank and the common monetary and fiscal policies that are established for those countries in the Eurozone. Because if you have the Euro as your common um, currency, then you are restricted to a certain percentage of your budget deficit. So it used to be 3% of GDP is the maximum debt. During this crisis, they, they increased it. But oddly enough, the United Kingdom, which is going it alone, says we want to go well below 3% because we are so scared of debt that that's the approach we're going to take. So. Like our central bank, which is called the Federal Reserve Board, the European Central Bank uh, is autonomous. They don't 
take orders from governments. The theory is we want it to be apolitical. We don't want you pump priming when the voters want it if that makes bad fiscal policy. We want to be technically expert in making a technical decision, not a political decision. You know, if you get a loan, you got to pay it back. It's not what the voters want to do, right? Uh, and technically, the, it's not completely divorced from politics because the Federal Reserve Board in our country, if enough people are complaining about unemployment, they're going to loosen monetary policy, and they did. Okay, but they're not going to take. Their, it's their job not to do it so much that we get inflation. Uh, in Europe, the European Central Bank uh, tries to control the money supply, not to avoid to avoid inflation, but also to make a technical decision about how much expansion in the money is 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 feasible in order to get the economy going, and it's a little bit. Uh, more res less restricted than what they're doing in Britain. There's also a European Economic and Social Committee, which is said to be the voice of civil society, that's non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and similar organizations. So this committee has 344 members, represents trade unions, employers, farmers, and consumers, its non-binding resolutions give advice on new EU laws and policies. It has to be consulted uh, and pro promotes the involvement of civil society in EU ma matters. In other words, although you don't get elected as a representative of the civil society sector in the European Parliament, you do get a voice. In our system of government, basically, I think it's a fair statement to say you've got to pay to play. Either give campaign contributions to legislators or if you are, you represent a very large group, uh, you may not have to pay as much, like a union that can deliver votes on election day. That was much more true in the past than in the present in the United States of America. Um, and we have very active civil society, lots of non-government organizations. We tend to call them trade associations. But still, you know, you hardly hear about poor people in the United States, or for that matter, in Western Europe either. They're kind of invisible. Why? Poor people don't vote, and they don't give campaign contributions. They can vote. They're eligible to vote. But generally, probability in the United States, the higher your income, the greater the probability of, of you, you, your voting. Why don't poor people vote? They're so discouraged. They don't believe in politics. They don't, how is this going to help me? Sometimes working people, who may be of modest means, you know, may be working and then ha doesn't, doesn't have their own car, so they don't have time to get to the, the polling station. Now, that's been improved lately by having the possibility of voting before the one-day period. That's a new development. I believe Oregon actually had voting only by mail. And I don't know if they continue that experiment. It's not an experiment. It's law now. Okay, so you can only vote by mail in, in Oregon. So that's even easier. Some countries like Australia, it's mandatory to vote. Now, they don't put you in prison, but they te theoretically fine you $25 or so for not voting. That raises participation to about 80%. And I, apparently, either people would rather pay $25 or they don't enforce the fine. Um, how many of you think we should make voting mandatory? Two? Three? It's, supposed, it's your right and it's your privilege, but it's not, your, it's not required in this country. Um, my view is that on the one I'm sort of torn. On the one hand, I feel like everybody ought to realize how important it is to vote, even though your vote's only, it doesn't count for anything in and of itself. If everybody takes the attitude that it's not important, then the civil society is not consulted by the elected leaders. And it's that consultation process in elections that's so critical. If we made it mandatory, of course, then you get people voting for Mickey Mouse uh, and Johnny Rotten or somebody else, you know, is kind of protest votes, and you know, people may not take it as seriously. Whereas you make it voluntary, and presumably people vote because they want to vote because they're serious about who they want to vote for. But the reality of that system is that poor people vote less often, first in the back and then you. The biggest complaint in Oregon was um, when I lived there when they started that was from the lobbying groups, from the TV stations and the newspapers because they weren't going to get as much money because the political ads would have to run for the three weeks when you got your ballot. You got your ballot three weeks before it was due, so you had plenty of time to fill it out. And most people filled them out and submitted them fairly, fairly early. And 
And so maybe only about five to 10% were submitted on the actual day they were due. And so people have plenty of time to develop that and you know, mull over these decisions as opposed to you know, the day of when everyone is- Yeah, I mean, half, half the, the candidates and races are, if it's not in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, I don't know about it, basically. And I don't read that paper as carefully as I used to when I first got here. When I first got here, I used to read it all the time, partly because it's not as good a paper as it used to be, and partly because I guess I've got less free time. I'm not sure why, but can't or I want to read other things. Um, and then, of course, the referenda, which they do cover in the paper, but you, know, you get there and you read the fine print. You don't really know what you're, even if you read it carefully, you don't really know what the point of it is. And you worry whether it's the opposite at least I do, of what, what they're suggesting. The Committee of the Regions is the voice of local government. So just, le just like in Germany, where the local government is represented in, in the national legislature. By the way, in the United States, did local government ever get represented in our national legislature? The answer is yes. For the first half of our country's history, the United States Senate was indirectly elected like the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. You were elected by your state legislature to represent the states. In Germany, the upper house of the Bundestag, which I think is called the Bundesrat, uh, are appointees of the provincial legislatures in Germany. The Committee of the Regions, again, has these 344 members, reflecting the 334 votes on the European Council and distributed accordingly, with the four countries have the most number of members representing cities and, and regions in each country, advising on new EU laws, just like the civil society organization does, and promotes the involvement of local governments in EU matters. How much of a difference these organizations make depends on how informal the powers are. Now, finally, civil servants, international civil servants working for the EU, like international civil servants who work for the UN or the Council of Europe, are really critical. These are the so-called technocrats. Um, so the commission, which is the most powerful supranational organization after maybe the court, employs 23,000 permanent civil servants and 11,000 temporary contract workers. And other EU institutions also imply 10,000. So you've got approximately 40,000 people employed by the EU in its permanent staff. So it's nothing to sneeze at. That's a fairly significant number. These are permanent civil servants elected by open competition, selected. So you'd have to take a civil service exam. No one in this room, unless you're an EU citizen, anyone an EU citizen, is eligible. Um, but if you're in one of the 27 countries, you are eligible. Um, they come from all the countries. Salaries are fixed by law. And EU administrative costs 15 euros per EU citizen per year. So that's approximately $20. Dollars worth more than a euro. When the first euro was first introduced, now it's worth less. But $20, does that sound like a lot of money to pay for these civil service? Well, of course, you know, it all adds up. But, you know, it's not, it's not a huge amount of money. How much money do you think you spend on the defense budget and your taxes on average in the United States? 60% or 20% of what we actually make. 60% of what you make? No, 60% of 20% of what we make. Well, the defense budget is not 60% of the U.S. budget. We know what the, it used to be. When I was a kid, the defense budget was the largest item in the U.S. government, federal government budget. Anyone know what, what is the largest now? Entitlements. Well, entitlements for sure, but which particular entitlement? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Medicare is the biggest. <laughs> Medicare is the biggest because we got a lot more old people, they live longer, and you spend half your lifetime medical expenses in your last six months of life, on average. So some people say we should pull the plug, except when it's you, you don't want it pulled, or a member of your family. Uh, but you know that's something on the order of 25 or 30 percent of the federal government budget is for Medicare alone. Social Security is almost as large, but that's off budget. So there's some question as to whether you should count that or not, because that's self-financed. Although it's not self-financed for you, it's self-financed between current workers paying for current retirees. It was supposed to be. You pay your own insurance in, and you get your own insurance out. It tends so far to work that way, but it, words to the wise, all of you in this room, if I were you, if you ever want to retire, start saving now. Even if you're making only low wages, just get in the habit of saving. It's a good way of avoiding getting credit card debt. Just don't spend, 
Most importantly, don't spend more than you earn. Because the first law of economics is expenses equal income. But in the United States, expenses equal income plus your credit card debt. Um, but in the old days, it was you know expenses equal income minus savings. But in the United States, we're negative savers. In China, where the economy is growing 10% a year, the average Chinese saves 30%. So that's more money the bank can lend and make their economy productive. Where do we get our money for our banks? From China. Because they buy our treasury bills and lend us money so that we don't have inflation so that the Federal Reserve can lend money to the banks. You also lend some money to the banks yourself when you have a savings account or a checking account. But because we have a federal budget deficit and a federal trade deficit, that's off, that offsets all of that. Um, one thing I want to draw your attention to is this argument about how um, peace comes through trade or functional cooperation promotes trust. So this argument that the EU exports peace and prosperity first within its own borders and then overseas is based on the idea that the free trade model that emerged in Europe had become, then became the free trade model for the rest of the world through the World Trade Organization, which is the equivalent of the EU for the world. It used to be called the GATT, the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade. We also have regional free trade zones that provide even lower tariffs, duties, and quotas, such as the NAFTA, North American Free Trade Area, or agreement rather, uh, for Canada, Mexico, and the United States, equivalent ones in South America and the rest of the world. Now let's turn to the Council of Europe. Well, let's just take a quick look at, I've mentioned this, the Lisbon Treaty a few times. This was the seventh treaty of the European Union that, as I mentioned before, exists because uh, the Constitution failed. So. This treaty came into effect a little a year ago, December. It's said to be more efficient uh, with a full-time president of the council. Uh, it's said to be more democratic because the parliament now is given co-equal legislative powers to the council instead of merely being a ratifier, a consulter of what the council's decided. Uh, provides stronger role also for national parliaments and has this very interesting Charter of Fundamental Rights that complements the European Council of Europe's European Convention of Human Rights. So that if you sue in the European, the Court of Justice of the European Union, that the European Union has violated your human rights, it's immediately enforceable in the whole European Union. For example, the Cadi case, K-A-D-I, went before the Court of Justice of the European Union. This was, um, came about because Cadi was put on a terrorist list run by the Counterterrorism Committee of the UN Security Council that was given authority by the Security Council resolution that uh, monitored terrorists to freeze their bank accounts to keep them from getting visas and passports and so forth. Cadi was one of these poor guys that happens so often because in Islam, Muslim peoples generally have Arabic names and they're the same ones for the last few centuries. Uh, in the United States now, we all make up new names. It's no longer John and Susan or Jane, like the good old days of my childhood. Like I remember my first book, teacher said, John, Jane, Spot, see Spot Run. You know, John and Jane were the two most common names when I was a kid. Now, practically no one's named John anymore, right? Anyone in this room named John? Okay, John, that's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Johns in my family going back six generations. I'm not named John. But it's a family tradition, and I'm glad if someone still has named John. Um, so he had his name Cadi, but you know came up on a terrorist list because there are a lot of Cadis out there, just like you know uh, Zulfikar and all these other common Arabic names. You know, get you on these lists, and so he sued the European Union as the implementing arm of the Counterterrorism Committee of the UN Security Council and won. She said, you know, I shouldn't be on this list. What right do they have to keep me from getting a bank account? I'm not a terrorist. Just because they put me mistakenly on a list, that's their problem, not my problem. And the court agreed, and they said, you know, as a, as a, a citizen of the European Union, you can't be frozen out of your rights 
without probable cause that you're a terrorist, not just because some FBI list or Department of Homeland Security list says that you might be or are a terrorist. And this happened to um, a German citizen of Syrian ethnicity who f was flying back. Um, well, there are two cases. There's one guy who was flying back to Canada via JFK, and Canada said that he was a terrorist, and he got arrested at JFK, and we t sent him to Syria to be tortured, and he was innocent. He just had a name, and he was tortured for nine or 10 months. And to this day, we haven't allowed him to sue us in court. He got money in Canada for giving a bum steer, but we haven't given him any chance to get his uh, rights observed. And the other case that's infamous is the case of a ethnic uh, Syrian, I believe also, I forgot, but anyway, on holiday in Albania, arrested and, and summarily, extraordinarily rendered to a Middle Eastern country to be tortured. And again, he was just someone with a common Arabic name who was tortured in a foreign country. Uh, and also the Lisbon Treaty clarifies who does what greater public access to do documents and meetings. So opportunities for informal powers, particularly from civil society, are increasing. The creation of the High Representative for Foreign Policy that I mentioned. And they think stronger counterterrorism and energy protection policies. We'll see whether it turns out that way. So there you get an overview of the European Union. So notice the informal powers come about when non-state actors can intervene. European democracies, unlike the United States, had fewer opportunities for trade associations, civil rights groups, uh, other interest groups, uh, trade associations to get, make their case in the drafting of bills, to testify at hearings. And now they're following our example and opening up the process a lot more. They also have these formal bodies that we don't have in our system for local governments, number one, and for civil society organizations, number two. Uh, let me just review enlargement for you so you're familiar with these 27 countries. Uh, the first six countries were Benelux plus Italy, Germany, and France. Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg came into being it says 1952. The Treaty of Rome was 1959 that formally began the common market, but actually you had the European Coal and Steel Community and the European Atomic <coughs> Energy Committee that were precursors of the common market. So actually, uh, the, what's the European Union today actually dates to these previous organizations in 1952. 1973, uh, Ireland and the United Kingdom up here joined. 1981. It looks like Greece joined, 1986, Spain and Portugal, 1990, looks like that's East Germany, when the Berlin Wall came down, 1995, you've got Sweden, Finland, and is that Austria or Switzerland? I can't tell. I think that's Austria. 2004 was the Big Bang, 10 countries. You can't see Cyprus very well, but that's it below Turkey there. And then you've got all of these former countries in the uh, former communist bloc. First, you've got Romania, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland. Um, I can't see what this country is way up here. Slovenia. Slovenia one of the former Yugoslavia countries, and then the three Baltic states that were absorbed by the Soviet Union after World War II, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, 10 countries, the Big Bang. Big, it's not the biggest in territory. Look, just looking at this map, it looks like the biggest one was probably in 52, followed by maybe 1995. But numbers of countries, that was the biggest. Then Romania and Bulgaria in 2007. Now currently the Western Balkans, uh, our prime candidates. Turkey was a candidate for membership, but because it doesn't represent, recognize Cyprus, which became a member in 2004, uh, because Turkey invaded Cyprus and recognized ethnic Turk northern part of Cyprus, which is the northern one-third, which is not part of Cyprus that is a member of the European Union. That's the official reason. The unofficial reason is Turkey's a big Muslim country, big, so Germany doesn't want another country to share voting power with. Muslim, because like it or not, 
there's a sense that the EU maybe should be Christian among certain countries, especially France, maybe Italy. Um, if it's not the Muslim part of it, maybe it's the religious part of it. Because it's not that they, the fact that you're Muslim, it's the fact that, it, that you're religious. Because Europe is far more secular than the United States. Of the European countries, Ireland and Poland are the only devout countries left, practically. Yes? Who's the one lone holdout there in the middle of all of the things? Switzerland. Switzerland's neutral in all of these issues. Um, Switzerland, I think, only became a member of the United Nations a couple of years ago. Uh, it has, it's the home of the Red Cross. It likes to be neutral. It was neutral during World War II. Did business unofficially with Hitler, but that's another story. Okay, in our final four minutes, let me just quickly review the Council of Europe because it's also there, which is the other big institution. So unlike the European Union, where the institutions are located in three different cities, the Council of Europe is entirely located in Strasbourg. It has 47, not 27 countries like the EU, but 47 members. Oddly enough, it has the exact same flag, the stars. Identical flag to the European Union. Don't know why that is, but that, that's the way it is. Um, the Committee of Ministers is the equivalent of the European Council and the European Union. It, it's intergovernmental. The Parliamentary Assembly is the equivalent of the European Parliament. But as I, as I said earlier, it represents the countries through the elected state legislators of each country. The European Court of Human Rights is the main judicial branch, and it implements and interprets the European Convention of Human Rights and its protocols. Uh, it also sets the standards for drugs in the 47 countries, for pharmaceuticals, something that the European Union doesn't appear to do. Um, Council of Europe was started uh, in Treaty of London in 1949, hosted by Winston Churchill. Uh, this is the old Council of Europe building called the House of Europe in Strasbourg in 1967. They have a modern new one. And if I, next time, I'll show you photographs of all these from my time over there. Here you can see the more modern built version of the same one. This is the Parliamentary Assembly of the European Union. They also have smaller rooms for the different committees. Okay, so here you can see some of the pictures. This is for the, the building for the quality of medicines. This is the Palace of Europe. This picture right here, you can see this lake. Over here is the European Parliament of the European Union. Um, this is the Palace of Europe, which is the Council of Europe's building. Uh, over here, you see this building where I've got the cursor? That's the European Court of Human Rights. So the Court of Human Rights here and this Palace of Europe, which is the Secretariat, which also includes the Parliamentary Assembly, these two are the Council of Europe. The only building for the European Union in Strasbourg is this one over here, the European Parliament. So um, in a very short walk with a tram that goes around here, you can visit all these buildings in one, you know, easily in one day and, and have a nice tour. If you go to the Georgia State uh, semester abroad in the castle, or for the summer when it would be a seven-week session, uh, you'd be living in the castle right here, about a 10-minute walk away or five-minute on the bus. So you, you, you get immersed in all of these incredible institutions. And the University of Strasbourg uh, has 50,000 students, so you can meet students from all over the world, all, f all the continents of the world in your classes. You can take classes, if you know French in French, if not, take classes in English. If you, if you think you might like to go and can get it off, I'd strongly urge you to start taking French now. You'll get so much out of it. The Rhine River, Strasbourg is full of beautiful canals designed to control the flooding from the Rhine. The Rhine is over here to the right, uh, and you walk across it and suddenly you're in Germany. And the trains will get you around Europe very, very quickly. You don't really need a car. Public transportation is really easy. They have trams all over the city. And you'll meet lots of nice young people all over the place. So uh, that's one view of Strasbourg. I'll, I'll show you a few more in the future. Uh, just remember that the informal powers where people get 
consult each other, they're as important as these formal powers. So when you're studying a particular policy issue, as the reading points out, it's really an analysis of how informal actors get into the system or how different issues have different sets of policy elites to create different networks of experts on issues to create the policies that Europe has created uh, across all these issue areas uh, in this part of the world. And uh, it's a model for the rest of the world. You see Asia, Africa, and the Far East adopting it. We've adopted features of it as well with the Inter-American Court <laughs> of Human Rights and the Organization of American States. Uh, and uh, so studying this is, is really to study international organizations all around the world. So thank you, and we'll see you next week, and we'll return to the Global Issues textbook. Thank you.